Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. Today we're going to be reading Chapter 6 of The Gift of Tongues, pages 39 to 52. The title of the chapter is The Restoration of the Gift. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. And the reader portion of the program is about 30, hold on, 34 minutes long. During the recorded portion of the program, we will be taking questions and comments off air. And once again, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. After the reader portion of the program, we will open up the phone lines to go live on the air. There's also a chat room at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon after, um, not after. Oh, the, the uh, chat room during the live program uh, from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. is available for people to uh, ask questions and comments as well. And that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. Anyway, the reader portion of the program is about 34 minutes long, and then we'll get into the reading and commentary portion of the program. Thank you for listening. Restoration of the Gift, Chapter 6 of the Gift of Tongues, pages 39 to 52 within the Articles of Faith of the Mormon Church is the statement indicating a belief in spiritual gifts. Article 7 states, We believe in the gift of tongues, prophecy, revelation, visions, healing, interpretation of tongues, etc. Thus with the restoration of the gospel, the same gifts and powers were restored with it. The prophet Joseph Smith commented on these gifts in a clear and decisive manner, explaining the nature and need for them. We believe in the gift of the Holy Ghost being enjoyed now, as much as it was in the Apostles' Ace. We believe now that it, the gift of the Holy Ghost, is necessary to make and to organize the priesthood, that no man can be called to fill any office in the ministry without it. We also believe in prophecy, in tongues, in visions, and in revelations, in gifts, and in healings, and that these things cannot be enjoyed without the gift of the Holy Ghost. We believe that the holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, and that holy men in these days speak by the same principle. We believe in its being a comforter and a witness bearer, that it brings things past to our remembrance, leads us into all truth, and shows us of things to come. We believe that no man can know that Jesus is the Christ, but by the Holy Ghost. We believe in it, the gift of the Holy Ghost, in all its fullness and power, and greatness, 
and glory. But whilst we do this, we believe in it rationally, consistently, and scripturally, and not according to the wild vagaries, foolish notions and traditions of men. The human family are very apt to run to extremes, especially in religious matters, and then people in general either want some miraculous display, or they will not believe in the gift of the Holy Ghost at all. If an elder lays his hands upon a person, it is thought by many that the person must immediately rise and speak in tongues and prophesy. This idea is gathered from the circumstance of Paul laying his hands upon certain individuals who had been previously, as they stated, baptized unto John's baptism, which when he had done, they spake in tongues and prophesied. Philip also, when he had preached the gospel to the inhabitants of the city of Samaria, sent for Peter and John, who when they came laid their hands upon them for the gift of the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them. And when Simon Magus saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money that he might possess the same power. Acts 8. These passages are considered by many as affording sufficient evidence for some miraculous, visible manifestation, whenever hands are laid on for the gift of the Holy Ghost. We believe that the Holy Ghost is imparted by the laying on of hands of those in authority, and that the gift of tongues, and also the gift of prophecy are gifts of the Spirit, and are obtained through that medium. But then to say that men always prophesied and spoke in tongues when they had the imposition of hands, would be to state that which is untrue, contrary to the practice of the apostles, and at variance with holy writ. For Paul says, to one is given the gift of tongues, to another the gift of prophecy, and to another the gift of healing, and again, do all prophesy? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Evidently showing that all did not possess these several gifts, but that one received one gift, and another received another gift, and dash all did not prophesy, or did not speak in tongues, or did not work miracles, but all did receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Sometimes they spake in tongues, and prophesied in the apostles' ace, and sometimes they did not. The same is the case with us also in our administrations while more frequently there is no manifestation at all that is visible to the surrounding multitude. This will appear plain when we consult the writings of the apostles and notice their proceedings in relation to this matter. Paul, in 1st Cor. 12, says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant, it is evident from this, that some of them were ignorant in relation to these matters, or they would not need instruction. One of the first recorded accounts of speaking in tongues in this dispensation occurred with the conversion of Brigham Young. He heard the story of the restoration of the gospel from Mormon elders and believed their testimony. This was in the fall of 1831 at Menden, New York, a few miles from Rochester. In April of 1832, Brigham Young was baptized by Eliza Miller. In September his wife Miriam died, so he made his home with O.C. Kimball. In that same month Brigham Young, his brother Joseph, and O.C. 
him who left for Kirtland to meet the prophet Joseph Smith. In his own history Brigham Young records the events of that occasion. A few weeks after my baptism I was at Brother Kimball's house one morning, and while family prayer was being offered up, Brother Alpheus Gifford commenced speaking in tongues. Tongues. Soon the Spirit came on me, and I spoke in tongues, and we thought only of the day of Pentecost, when the apostles were clothed upon with cloven tongues of fire. In September, 1832, Brother, O.C., Kimball took his horse and wagon, Brother Joseph Young and myself accompanying him, and started for Kirtland to see the Prophet Joseph. We visited many friends on the way, and some branches of the church. We exhorted them on prayed with them, and I spoke in tongues. Some pronounced it genuine and from the Lord, and others pronounced it of the devil. We proceeded to Kirtland and stopped at John P. Green's, who had just arrived there with his family. We rested a few minutes, took some refreshment, and started to see the prophet. He went to his father's house and learned that he was in the woods, chopping. We immediately repaired to the woods, where we found the prophet, and two or three of his brothers, chopping and hauling wood. He my joy was full at the privilege of shaking the hand of the prophet of God, and I received the sure testimony, by the spirit of prophecy, that he was all that any man could believe him to be, as the true prophet. He was happy to see us, and bid us welcome. We soon returned to his house, he accompanying us. In the evening a few of the brethren came in, and we conversed together upon the things of the kingdom. He called upon me to pray. In my prayer I spoke in tongues. As soon as we arose from our knees the brethren flocked around him, and asked his opinion concerning the gift of tongues that was upon me. He told them it was the pure Adamic language. Some said to him they expected he would condemn the gift Brother Brigham had, but he said, No, it is of God, and the time will come when Brother Brigham Young will preside over this church. The latter part of this conversation was in my absence. The Prophet Joseph wrote this incident. At one of our interviews, Brother Brigham Young and John P. Green spoke in tongues, which was the first time I had heard this gift among the brethren. Others also spoke, and I received the gift myself. I see, Kimball at a later date told the same story. In the month of April, 1832, we were all baptized. The church in Pennsylvania was the first that received the gift of tongues. We received them next and carried them to Kirtland, and it was then the prophet heard the tongues for the first time. He acknowledged the gift to be of God. Genesis Brigham Young's brother related the same incident. The congregation was at the time in a kneeling posture. As soon as Brother Brigham had concluded his prayer, the prophet rose to his feet and invited them to rise and be seated. Joseph then addressed them, and said, Brethren, this tongue that was heard is the gift of God, for he has made it known unto me, and I shall never oppose anything that comes from him. 
I feel the spirit that Brother Brigham has manifested in this gift of tongues, and I wish to speak myself in the tongue that it will please the Lord to give me. He accordingly spoke in what may be called an open and fluent language, more so than was commonly heard. He occupied some minutes in the exercise of the gift. After he had concluded he said, Brethren, this is the language of our father Adam while he dwelt in Eden. And the time will again come, that when the Lord brings again Zion, the Zion of Enoch, this people will then all speak the language which I have just spoken. Jebediah Grant mentions the impact of these experiences by stating, I remember well, when a boy, of hearing Brother Brigham speak in tongues, and the effect it produced I shall never forget. I could feel the spirit, although I did not fully understand the tongue. I have heard others speak in tongues, but it had not the same effect, and I have marked the different impressions received under different individuals. Journal of Discourses The gift of tongues was quite commonly bestowed upon many members of the church, and along with other spiritual gifts, was a great blessing for the saints. Sarah Leovich recorded how that gift was enjoyed in their meetings. We never had lived where there was a branch of the church, but we got together every week and had prayer meetings and the Lord was with us and poured out His Spirit upon us in so much that they spoke in tongues and prophesied. The children took an active part in these meetings. They would talk in tongues and prophecy and it was interpreted. We depended on no leader but the Lord and he led us into all truth. The sick were healed as often as any were taken sick. George A. Smith mentioned that the gift of tongues was present while the saints anticipated preaching to the Lamanites. In the early years of the church, there was a great anxiety among the brethren to travel and preach the gospel among the Lamanites, but the rigid laws of the United States at that time prevented any intercourse with them. Lamanites but the rigid laws of the United States at that time prevented any intercourse with them. The brethren used to feel animated upon the subject. They would speak in tongues and prophesy, and rejoice exceedingly in the things that were about to transpire, or that they believed would transpire when they should be permitted to go and preach the gospel to the Lamanites. Journal of Discourses A few of many other interesting accounts of the gift of tongues recorded in church history are included here. Tuesday, October the 29th, 1833 and dash after preaching at 10 o'clock am comma baptized too, and confirmed them at the water's side. Last evening we ordained if any person an elder, and one of the sisters received the gift of tongues, which made the saints rejoice exceedingly. While the press and many of the public were breathing the spirit of bitterness against the work of God, I received letters from many of our friends, which gave us occasion for rejoicing. Amongst them, I extract from Brother Moses Chapman the Accursons letter of December the 20th, 1833. Your labors in Canada have been the beginning of a good work. There are 34 members attached to the church at Mount Pleasant, all of whom appear to live up to their profession five of whom have spoken in tongues, and three have sung in tongues, and we live at the top of the mountain. Luke S. Johnson's blessing, in dash our Father in heaven, look down in mercy upon us, and upon this thy servant, 
whom we ordained to the ministry of the Twelve. He shall be prepared and preserved, and be like those we have blessed before him. The nations shall tremble before him. He shall hear the voice of God. He shall comfort the hearts of the saints always. The angels shall bear him up till he shall finish his ministry. He shall be delivered and come forth with Israel. He shall bear testimony to the kings of the earth and hold communion with the Father, with the Son, and with the general assembly and church of the firstborn. If cast into prison, he shall be able to comfort the hearts of his comrades. His tongue shall be loosed, and he shall have power to lead many to Zion and sit down with them. The Ancient of Days shall pronounce this blessing, that he has been faithful. He shall have strength, wisdom, and power. He shall go among the covenant people and speak all their tongues where he shall go. All these blessings we confirm upon him in the name of Jesus. Amen. The twelve then proceeded to anoint and bless the presidency of the seventy and seal upon their heads power and authority to anoint their brethren. The heavens were opened unto Elder Sylvester Smith, and he, leaping up, exclaimed, The horsemen of Israel and the chariots thereof. Brother Dom C. Smith was also anointed blessed to preside over the high priest's quorum. President Regan arose to conclude the services of the evening by invoking the blessing of heaven upon the Lord's anointed, which he did in an eloquent manner. The congregation shouted along Hosanna, the gifts of tongues fell upon us in mighty power, angels mingled their voices with ours, while their presence was in our midst, and unceasing praises swelled our bosoms for the space of half an hour. Alpheus Gifford in 1831, heard of the doctrines of Joseph Smith and then Dash, made diligent inquiry and found they were scriptural and was baptized and ordained a priest. He brought home five books of Mormon which he distributed among his friends. He was then living in Theoga County, Pennsylvania. Soon after he went to Kirtland, Ohio, to see the prophet Joseph Smith and the brethren, when he was ordained an elder. He was accompanied by his brother Levi, Eliel Strong, Eliza Miller, Joe's Curtis, and Abraham Brown, who were baptized. On returning to Pennsylvania he preached and baptized many, among whom was O.C. Kimball. The gifts of the gospel were enjoyed by many. Signs followed those who believed. Devils were cast out. The sick were healed. Many prophesied. Some spake with new tongues, while others interpreted the same. Mr. Calvin Gilmer, with whom Brother Gifford had previously been associated in preaching, heard him speak in tongues and interpret. Gilmer declared he understood the languages and that they were interpreted correctly, and that he knew Gifford had no classical learning, but that he would rather be damned than believe in Mormonism. THC 4 110, footnote, notwithstanding all my labor, while I was in the East Room with the Bishop's Quorum, I felt, by the Spirit, that something was wrong in the Quorum of Elders in the West Room, and I immediately requested President Oliver Cowdery and Hiram Smith to go in and see what was the matter. The Quorum of Elders had not observed the order which I had given them, 
and were reminded of it by President Don Carlos Smith, and mildly requested to preserve order, and continue in prayer. And mildly requested to preserve order, and continue in prayer. Some of them replied that they had a teacher of their own, and did not wish to be troubled by others. This caused the Spirit of the Lord to withdraw. This interrupted the meeting, and this quorum lost their blessing in a great measure. The other quorums were more careful, and the quorum of the seventy enjoyed the great flow of the Holy Spirit. Many arose and spoke, testifying that they were filled with the Holy Ghost, which was like fire in their bones, so that they could not hold their peace, but were constrained to fight as honor to God and the Lamb, and glory in the highest. President William Smith, one of the twelve, saw a vision of the twelve, and seven in council together, in old England, and prophesied that a great work would be done by them in the old countries, and God was already beginning to work in the hearts of the people. President Zeb D. Coltrane, one of the seven, saw a vision of the Lord's host, and others were filled with the Spirit, and spake with tongues and prophesied. This was a time of rejoicing long to be remembered. I met the quorums in the evening and instructed them respecting the ordinance of washing of it, which they were to attend to on Wednesday following, and gave them instructions in relation to the spirit of prophecy, and called upon the congregation to speak, and not to fear to prophesy good concerning the saints, for if you prophesy the falling of these fools and the rising of the kingdom of God, it shall come to pass. Do not quench the spirit, for the first one that opens his mouth shall receive the spirit of prophecy. Brother George A. Smith arose and began to prophesy, when a noise was heard like the sound of a rushing mighty wind, which filled the temple, and all the congregation simultaneously arose, being moved upon by an invisible power. Many began to speak in tongues and prophesy. Others saw glorious visions. And I behold the temple was filled with angels, which fact I declare to the congregation. The people of the neighborhood came running together, hearing an unusual sound within, and seeing a bright light like a pillar of fire resting upon the temple, and were astonished at what was taking place. This continued until the meeting closed at 11 p.m. The number of official members present on this occasion was 416 being a greater number than ever assembled on any former occasion. Part of the prayer that Joseph Smith received by revelation and offered during the Curtain Temple dedication was as follows. Jehovah, have mercy upon this people, and as all men sin, forgive the transgressions of thy people, and let them be blotted out forever. Let the anointing of thy ministers be sealed upon them with power from on high, let it be fulfilled upon them, as upon those on the day of Pentecost. Let the gift of tongues be poured out upon thy people, even cloven tongues as of fire, and the interpretation thereof. And let thy house be filled, as with a rushing mighty wind, with thy glory. The prayer was heard and accepted because two days later the prophet recorded, I left the meeting in the charge of the twelve, and retired about nine o'clock in the evening. The brethren continued exhorting, prophesying, and speaking in tongues until five o'clock in the morning. The Saviour made his appearance to some, 
while angels minister to others, and it was a Pentecost and an endowment indeed, long to be remembered, for the sound shall go forth from this place into all the world, and the occurrences of this day shall be handed down upon the pages of sacred history, to all generations. As the day of Pentecost, so shall this day be numbered and celebrated as a year of jubilee, and time of rejoicing to the saints of the Most High God. Many are baptized every week, although the ice is to yield its natural claims, and be put aside. The gift of healing is manifested to quite an extent in this region. The gift of tongues is received in most of the branches where I am acquainted. The gift of tongues was one of the gifts that gave the sea, Kimball the confidence he needed to serve in this gospel. He said, I remember the time when I was baptized into the church, and how after I was baptized, Alpheus Gifford said he felt impressed to ordain me an elder. I was on my knees and jumped up and told him to hold on, that I was not a learned man, and I thought that my ordination would injure the work. But presently the Holy Ghost came upon me till I thought that I should be burnt up. I could speak in tongues and prophesy, and I understood the scriptures. Journal of Discourses, although the gift of tongues and the interpretation thereof was a great blessing and comfort to the saints, it also created problems for them. For those who despised Mormonism, it provided another reason to find fault with the relatively new church. Those who despised Mormonism, it provided another reason to find fault with the relatively new church. According to Urson Pratt and Dash, inquires one and dash, why were you driven from that land? I might answer you by repeating the words of our enemies, for they have published their reasons for driving us from our homes. One reason was that we pretended to speak in tongues, which was considered a mortal offense against the religionists. This was one accusation that they brought against us, as you will find in their published declarations, in which they pledged their lives their property and their sacred honor to dispossess us of our homes. Another accusation was that we professed to heal the sick. What a terrible crime it was for a man to lay his hands on sick persons and ask the Lord to heal them, and then if the Lord healed the sick they should not be worthy to keep their land, but should be driven from their homes and be deprived of their property. Another reason was that, Besides believing in the gifts of speaking in tongues and healing the sick, we assumed to foretell future events. They did not like that at all. To think that people should believe in that part of the gospel in the 19th century was too much for our enemies, and they said and dash, we cannot have such people in our midst, to corrupt our morals, and to introduce the old-fashioned religion that is taught in the New Testament. Journal of Discourses, although the saints were driven into the wilderness, the gift of tongues faithfully followed them. Many saints around the world were given that gift, and it brought them into the church. In their travels out west an interesting episode occurred with the Indians, a counter bluffs, as written by a 17-year-old girl by the name of Jane Grover. She wrote in her journal, one morning we thought we would go and gather gooseberries. 
Father Tanner, as we familiarly call the good patriarchal elder Nathan Tanner, harnessed a span of horses to a light wagon, and, with two sisters by the name of Liman, his little granddaughter, and me, started out. When we reached the woods we told the old gentleman to go to a house inside and rest himself while we picked the berries. It was not long before the little girl and I strayed some distance from the rest, when suddenly we heard shouts. The little girl thought it was her grandfather, and was about to answer, but I restrained her, thinking it might be Indians. We walked forward until within sight of Father Tanner, when we saw he was running his team around. We thought nothing strange at first, but as we approached we saw Indians gathering around the wagon, hooping and yelling as others came and joined them. We got into the wagon to start when four of the Indians took hold of the wagon wheels to stop the wagon, and two others held the horses by the bits, and another came to take me out of the wagon. I then began to be afraid as well as vexed, and asked Father Tanner to let me get out of the wagon and run for assistance. He said, no, poor child, it is too late. I told him they should not take me alive. His face was as white as a sheet. The Indians had commenced to strip him and Dash had taken his watch and handkerchief and Dash and while stripping him, were trying to pull me out of the wagon. I began silently to appeal to my Heavenly Father. While praying and struggling, the Spirit of the Almighty fell upon me and I rose with great power, and no tongue can tell my feelings. I was happy as I could be. A few moments before I saw worse than death staring me in the face, and now my hand was raised by the power of God and I talked to those Indians in their own language. They let go the horses and wagon, and all stood in front of me while I talked to them by the power of God. They bowed their heads and answered, yes, in a way that made me know what they meant. The little girl and Father Tana looked on in speechless amazement. I realized our situation. Their calculation was to kill Father Tana, burn the wagon, and take us women prisoners. This was plainly shown me. When I stopped talking they shook hands with all three of us, and returned all they had taken from Father Tanner, who gave them back the handkerchief, and I gave them berries and crackers. By this time the other two women came up, and we hastened home. The Lord gave me a portion of the interpretation of what I had said, which was as follows. I suppose you Indian warriors think you're going to kill us? Don't you know the Great Spirit is watching you and knows everything in your heart? We have come out here to gather some of our father's fruit. We have not come to injure you. And if you harm us, or injure one hair of our heads, the Great Spirit shall smite you to the earth, and you shall not have power to breathe another breath. We have been driven from our homes, and so have you. We have come out here to do you good, and not to injure you. We are the Lord's people and so are you. But you must cease your murders and wickedness. The Lord is displeased with it and will not prosper you if you continue in it. Continue in it. You think you own all this land, this timber, 
this water, all the horses, why, you do not own one thing on earth, not even the air you breathe in dash it all belongs to the great spirit. The gift of tongues has been manifested many times and for many reasons in this dispensation. It was indeed a beneficial gift that helped provide a strong spiritual foundation. Chapter 7 Comfort and Instruction Now we'll get into the reading and commentary portion of the program. Once again, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. Okay, Emmett, uh, are you on? Yeah. Look in the studio and see if it says uh, gift. 6.2. So just for the listening audience, I uploaded, is it, does it say gift 6.2? Oh, okay. Well then it must have uploaded. I'm not sure. Well, then you can play that um, for the reading and commentary. So for the listening audience, this chapter was too long to do all in one clip. So I usually I try to keep it under an hour, but this is a little bit longer than that. So I had to split it up into two parts. Anyway, uh, let's see if you can find, or if you can, uh, you know, play the 6.2 clip. How long is it? Uh, a long time. Uh, I have it in the book, too, if we need that. It's 50 minutes, 49 okay. seconds. Yeah, okay. Go ahead and and um, use the gold tassel bookmark on in, in the Enzyme to the Nations book. That way, it's not, you know, it's ready the, to go. What? It's volume one. We have it in soft cover, not hard cover, but I'll put a bookmark in it. It's in soft cover? It's in uh, Enzyme to the Nations Missionary Edition? Uh. I don't know if it's Missionary Edition. It just says Volume 1. It's weird. Oh. <laughs> okay, well, like we do only- have Volume 1 in soft cover and in hard cover. So it doesn't matter well, as long as you have the text. Yeah. It doesn't uh, matter as I- long as I- you have the text. Go ahead. You're going to speak. I was going to say, should I just try to play the regular one then? And if that doesn't work, yeah, try it. to play the clip. If it doesn't work, then we're going to have to sit down and actually read it. Um, but I already read it. I mean, I spent like an hour and a half like recording this earlier today and doing all the stuff. So hopefully it'll work. Go ahead and play the clip. If it doesn't work, then, um, then, you know, you've got the book to read. Also, um, at the end of this program, if 
Uh, well, actually, you know what? I think this is going to cover the whole thing, so we probably don't need to be reading uh, how to qualify the, for the celestial kingdom today, unless you want to. Then, then after the clip plays, if we don't have any callers, then we can read that. But we'll go to that point, and then we'll try to figure it out. And uh, hopefully, the the clip that I tried to prepare will work. So go ahead. I'll mute myself. You mute yourself and play that clip. Thank you. Restoration of the Gift, Chapter 6 of the Gift of Tongues, pages 39 to 52. Within the Articles of Faith of the Mormon Church is a statement indicating a belief in spiritual gifts. Article 7 of the Articles of Faith state, We believe in the gift of tongues, prophecy, revelations, visions, healing, interpretation of tongues, etc. Thus, with the restoration of the gospel, the same gifts and powers were restored with it. The Prophet Joseph Smith commented on these gifts in a clear and decisive manner, explaining the nature and need for them. Quote, We believe in the gift of the Holy Ghost being enjoyed now, as much as it was in the Apostles' days. We believe now that it the gift of the Holy Ghost, is necessary to make and organize the priesthood, that no man can be called to fill any office in the ministry without it. We also believe in prophecy, in tongues, in visions and in revelations, in gifts and in healings, and that these things cannot be enjoyed without the gift of the Holy Ghost. We believe that holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, and that holy men in these days speak by the same principle. We believe in its being a comfort, a comforter and a witness bearer, that it brings things to pass to our remembrance, leads us to all truth, and shows us of things to come. We believe that no man can know that Jesus is the Christ, but by the Holy Ghost. We believe in it, the gift of uh, the Holy Ghost, in its fullness and power and greatness and glory. But while we do do this, we believe it rationally, consistently, and scripturally, and not according to the wild vagaries, foolish notions, and traditions of men. The human family are very apt to run to extremes, especially in religious matters. And hence, people in general either want some miraculous display or they will not believe in the gift of the Holy Ghost at all. If an elder lays his hands upon a person, it is thought by many that the person must immediately rise and speak in tongues and prophesy. This idea is gathered from the circumstances of Paul laying his hands upon certain individuals who had been previously as they stated, baptized unto John's baptism, which when one had done, they spake in tongues and prophesied. Philip also, when he had preached the gospel to the inhabitants of the city of Samaria, sent Peter and John, who when they came, laid their hands upon them for the gift of the Holy Ghost, 
for as yet he was fallen upon none of them, meaning the gift of the Holy Ghost. And when Simon Magus saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money that he might possess the same power. That's found in Acts chapter 8. These passages are considered by many as affording sufficient evidence for some miraculous, visible manifestation whenever hands are laid on on for the gift of the Holy Ghost. We believe that the Holy Ghost is imparted by the laying on of hands of those in authority and that the gift of tongues and also the gift of prophecy are gifts of the Spirit and are obtained through that medium, meaning the gift of the Holy Ghost. But then to say that men always prophesied and spoke in tongues when they had the imposition of hands would to be would be to state that which is untrue, contrary to the practice of the apostles, and at variance with holy writ. For Paul says, To one is given the gift of tongues, and to another the gift of prophecy, and to another the gift of healing. And again, do all prophesy? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Evidently showing that all did not possess these several gifts but that one received one gift and another received another gift. All did not prophesy, all did not speak in tongues, all did not work miracles, but all did receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Sometimes they spake in tongues and prophesied in the apostles' days, and sometimes they did not. The same is the case with us also in our administration while more frequently there is no manifestation at all. That is visible to the surrounding multitude. This will appear plain when we consult the writings of the apostles and notice their proceedings in relation to this matter. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant, It is evident from this that some of them were ignorant in relation to these matters or they would not need instruction. End quote by Joseph Smith is recorded in the Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 5, pages 27 and 28. One of the first recorded accounts of speaking in tongues in this dispensation occurred with the conversation of Brigham Young. We heard the story of the restoration of the gospel from Mormon elders and believed their testimony. This was in the fall of 1831 at Menden, New York, a few miles from Rochester. In April of 1832, Brigham Young was baptized by Eliza Miller. In September, his wife Miriam died, so he made his home with Heber C. Kimball. In that same morning, or in that same month, Brigham Young, his brother Joseph Young, and Heber C. Kimball left for Kirtland to meet with the prophet Joseph Smith. In his own history, Brigham Young records the events on that occasion. Quote, A few weeks after my baptism, I was at Brother Kimball's house one morning, and while family prayer was being offered up, Brother Alpheus Gifford commenced speaking in tongues. The Spirit 
came upon me, and I spoke in tongues, and we thought only of the day of Pentecost, when the apostles were clothed upon with cloven tongues of fire. In September of 1832, Brother Heber C. Kimball took his horse and wagon. Brother Joseph Young and myself accompanied him and started for Kirtland to see the Prophet Joseph. We visited many friends on the way and some branches of the church. We exhorted them and prayed with them, and I spoke in tongues. Some pronounced it genuine and from the Lord. Others pronounced it of the devil. We proceeded to Kirtland and stopped at John P. Green's, who had just arrived there with his family. We rested a few minutes, took some refreshment, and started to see the prophet. We went to his father's house and learned that he was in the woods chopping. We immediately repaired to the woods when we found the prophet and two or three of his brothers chopping and hauling wood. Here my joy was full at the privilege of shaking the hand of the prophet of God. I received the sure testimony by the spirit of prophecy that he was all that any man could believe him to be as a true prophet. He was happy to see us and bid us welcome. We soon, soon returned to his home, he accompanying us. In the evening, of few of the bro- in the evening, a few of the brethren came in, and we conversed together upon the things of the kingdom. He called upon me to pray, and in prayer I soon spoke in tongues. As soon as we arose from our knees, the brethren flocked around him and asked his opinion concerning the gift of tongues that was upon me. He told them it was the pure Adamic language. Some said to him they expected that he would condemn the gift Brother Brigham had, but he said, no, it is of God, and the time will come when Brother Brigham Young will preside over this church. The later part of the conversation was in my absence. End quote, Millennial Star, page 25, I'm sorry, volume 25, page 439. The Prophet Joseph wrote of this incident, quote, At one of our interviews, Brother Brigham Young and John P. Green spoke in tongues, which was the first time I had heard this gift among the brethren. Others also spoke, and I received the gift myself. End quote, Doctrinal History of the Church, volume 1, page 296. Heber C. Kimball, at a later date, told the same story, quote, In the month of April 1832, we were all baptized. That church in Pennsylvania was the first that received the gift of tongues. We received them next and carried them to Kirtland, and it was then that the prophet heard the tongues for the first time. He acknowledged the gift to be of God. Remarks were made by Heber C. Kimball, Nauvoo, 3, January 8, 1845. The Utah General and History Magazine, July 1920, page 113. Brigham Young's brother related the same incident. Quote, The congregation was at the time in a kneeling posture, 
As soon as Brother Brigham had concluded his prayers, the prophet rose to his feet and invited them to rise and be seated. Joseph then addressed them and said, quote, Brethren, this tongue that was heard is the gift of God, for he has made it known unto me, and I shall never possess anything that comes from him. Oh, I'm sorry. And I shall never oppose anything that comes from him, meaning the gift of God. I feel the spirit that Brother Brigham was manifest in this gift of tongues, and I wish to speak myself in the tongue that it will please the Lord to give me. He accordingly spoke in what may be called an open and fluent language, more so than was commonly heard. He occupied some minutes in the exercise of the gift. After he had concluded and said, Brethren, this is the language of our father Adam, while he dwelt in Eden. And the time will come again, again come, that when the Lord brings again Zion, the Zion of Enoch, this people will then all speak the language which I have just spoken. And quote, uh, as accounted by Joseph Young, Historical Items, November 1st, 1878. Jedediah Grant mentioned the impact of these experiences by stating, I remember well when a boy of hearing Brother Brigham speak in tongues and the effects it produced, I shall never forget. I could feel the spirit, although I could feel the spirit, although I did not fully understand the tongue. I have heard others speak in tongues and it had not the same effect, but I have remarked the different impressions received under different individuals. End quote, Journal of Discourses, Volume 3, page 8. The gift of tongues was quite commonly bestowed upon many members of the church, and along with other spiritual gifts was a great blessing for the saints. Sarah Levitt recorded how the gift was enjoyed in their meetings, quote, we never had lived where there was a branch of the church, but we got together every week and had prayer and meetings, our prayer meetings, and the Lord was with us and poured out his spirit upon us in so much that they spoke in tongues and prophesied. The children uh, took an active part in these meetings. They would talk in tongues and prophesy and it was interpreted. We depended on no leader but the Lord, and he led us into all truth. The sick were healed as often as any were taken sick. End quote. Sarah Levitt Journal, page 18. George A. Smith mentioned the gift of tongues was present while the saints anticipated preaching to the Lamanites. Quote, in the early years of the church, there was a great anxiety among the brethren to travel and preach the gospel among the Lamanites. But the rigid laws of the United States at that time prevented any intercourse with them. The brethren used to feel animated upon the subject. They would speak in tongues and prophesy and rejoice exceedingly in the things that were about to transpire or that they believed would transpire when they should be permitted to go and preach the gospel to the Lamanites. Journal of Discourses, Volume 3, page 23. 
and a few of many other interesting accounts of the gift of tongues recorded in church history are included here. We're on page 45, 41% of the reading. Tuesday, October 29, 1833, after preaching at 10 o'clock a.m., I baptized two and confirmed them at the water's side. Last evening, we ordained F.A. Nickerson, an elder, and one of the sisters received the gift of tongues, which made the saints rejoice exceedingly. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 1, page 422. While the press and many of the public were breathing the spirit of bitterness against the work of God, I received letters from many of our friends which gave us occasion for rejoicing amongst them. I extracted Brother Moses Chapman Nickerson, Nickerson's letter of December 20, 1833. Quote, Your labors in Canada have been be- the beginning of a good work. There are 34 members attached to the church at Mount Pleasant, all of whom to live appear to live up to their profession, five of whom have spoken in tongues and three have sung in tongues, and we live at the top of the mountain. February 1880, uh, I'm sorry, February of 1834, Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 2, page 40. Luke S. Johnson, uh, this is Luke S. Johnson's blessing, quote, Our Father in heaven, look down in mercy upon us, and upon this thy servant, whom we ordain to the ministry of the twelve. He shall be prepared and, pres- prepared and preserved, and be, be like those who have blessed, we have blessed before him. The nation shall tremble before him. He shall hear the voice of God. He shall comfort the hearts of the saints always. The angels shall bear him up till he shall finish his ministry. He shall be delivered and come forth with Israel. He shall bear testimony to the kings of the earth and hold communion with the Father with the Son, and with the General Assembly of the Church of the Firstborn. If cast into prison, he shall be able to comfort the hearts of his comrades. His tongue shall be loosed, and he shall have power to lead many to Zion. And sit down with them, the Ancient of Days, shall pronounce this blessing, that he has been faithful, and he shall have strength, wisdom, and power. He shall go among the covenant people and speak all their tongues where he shall go. All these blessings we confirm upon him in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And that was recorded February of 1835. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 2, page 190. And we are on page 46 at 49% of the reading. The twelve then proceeded to anoint and bless the presidency of the seventy and seal upon their heads power and authority to anoint their brethren. The heavens were opened unto Elder Sylvester Smith, and he leaping up exclaimed, exclaimed, 
quote, the horsemen of Israel and the chariots thereof. Brother Don C. Smith was also anointed, blessed to preside over the high priest's quorum. President Rigdon also arose to conclude the services of the evening by invoking the blessing of heaven upon the Lord's anointed, which he did in an eloquent manner. The congregation shouted along, Hosanna! The gift of tongues fell upon us in a mighty power. Angels mingled their voices with ours, while their presence was in our midst, and unceasing praises swelled our bosom for the space of half an hour. January of 1836, Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 2, page 383. Alpheus Gifford, in 1831, heard of the doctrines of Joseph Smith and made diligent, quote, diligent inquiry and found they were scriptural and was baptized and ordained a priest. He brought home five books of Mormon, which he distributed among his friends. He was then living in Tioga County, Pennsylvania, Soon after, he went to Kirtland, Ohio to see the prophet Joseph Smith and the brethren. When he was ordained an elder, he was accompanied by his brother Levi Eliel Strong, Eliezer Miller, uh, Eos Curtis, and Abraham Brown, who were baptized. On returning to Pennsylvania, he preached and baptized many, among who was Heber C. Kimball. The gifts of the gospel were enjoyed by many, and signs followed those who believed. Devils were cast out, the sick were healed, many prophesied, some spake with new tongues, while others interpreted the same. Mr. Calvin Gilmore, with whom Brother Guilford had previously been associated in preaching, heard him speak in tongues and interpret. Gilmore declared he understood the language and that they were interpreted correctly and that he knew Guilford had no classical learning, but that he would rather be damned than believe in Mormonism. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 4, page 110 in the footnote. Notwithstanding all my labor, while I was in East Room with the bishop's quorum, I felt by the Spirit that something was wrong in the quorum of the elders upon the West Room, and I immediately requested the presence of Oliver Caldry and Hiram Smith to go in and see what was the matter. The quorum of elders had not observed the order which I had given them and were reminded of it by President Don Carlos Smith, and mildly requested to preserve order and continue in prayer. Some of them replied that they had a teacher of their own and did not wish to be troubled by others. This caused the Spirit of the Lord to withdraw. This, interp inter this interrupted the meeting, and this quorum lost their blessings in a great measure. The power... I'm sorry, the quorum... The other quorums were more careful, and the quorum of the Seventy enjoyed a great flow of the Holy Spirit. 
Many arose and spoke, testifying that they were filled with the Holy Ghost, which was like fire in their bone, bones, so that they could not hold their, their peace, but were constrained to cry, Hosanna to God and the Lamb and glory to the highest. President William Smith, one of the twelve, saw a vision of the twelve and seven in council together in Old England and prophesied that a great work would be done by them in the, in the old countries. And God was already beginning to work in the hearts of the people. President Zebedee Coltrane, one of the seven, saw a, vis a visit of the Lord's hosts, and others were filled with the Spirit and spake with tongues and prophesied. This was a time of rejoicing long to be remembered. February of 1836, Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 2, page 392. We're on page 48 if you're reading along, and we're at 63% of the reading. I met the Quorums in the evening and instructed them respecting the ordinances of washing, the ordinance of washing of feet, which they were to attend to on Wednesday following, and gave them instructions in relation to the spirit of prophecy and called upon the congregation to speak and not to fear to prophesy good concerning the saints. For if you prophesy the failing of these hills and the rising of the kingdom of God, it shall come to pass. Do not quench the spirit for the first one that opens his mouth shall receive the spirit of prophecy. Brother George A. Smith arose and began to prophesy when a noise was heard like the sound of a rushing mighty wind which filled the temple and all the congreg congregations simultaneously arose being moved upon by the invisible power. Many began to speak in tongues and prophesy. Others saw glorious visions and I beheld the temple was filled with angels which fact I declared to the congregation. The people of the neighborhood came running together, hearing an unusual sound within and seeing a bright light like a pillar of fire resting upon the temple. That is the Shekinah glory of God. That is what happened in the, the, uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness, Solomon's temple, and the Kirtland temple, because each of those temples were accepted by God. It did not happen in the Nauvoo temple. It never happened in the Nauvoo temple, and it hasn't happened in a temple since. Not even out in Tonopah, Nevada. The Shekinah glory of God resting upon the temple is like a pillar of light. So I heard uh, an individual that I am friends with tell me that they saw a light on in the temple in Tonopah. So I'm talking about the righteous branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Ch Gerald Peterson group. They have like two to 400 members somewhere around there. And they have two temples, one they can't use for some reason, and I think they're building another one. But the one that they do have uh, in operation is in a place called Tonopah, Nevada. 
out in the middle of the desert. And I can't remember if it was the one near Cedar City or if it was the one out in the, the middle of the desert in the middle of Nevada. But I was told that they saw a light on in the temple and there was no light or there was no electricity when they saw the light. Okay. That's not the Shekinah glory of God. That they look through the windows and they see that there's a light on through the windows and that, that's, all, that's what they're calling the Shekinah glory of God. The fact of the matter is the revelation in 1841 Jesus said that they would be rejected as a church with their dead. So like I don't know how they claim that they get their authority through Brigham Young. Like, uh, I, I can't remember how the succession goes, but like, basically there was a bunch of people who were asked to keep plural celestial marriage alive. That's the birth of fundamentalism, and that was um, John Taylor who asked them to do that. And that when things were made right, they would be welcomed back into the church. And that's the birth of fundamentalism. It's not a bunch of apostates going crazy off the wall, you know, whatever. The fundamentalists, the, the authority claims of the fundamentalists come through John Taylor. But the problem with that is, Jesus said he rejected the church with their dead in DNC section 124. So these people with their authority claims, it ends with Joseph Smith. They do not have the keys and the authority that they claim to have. None of them do. Not the community of Christ, not the Stringites, not the Brighamites, not any of them. And the last temple that had the Shekinah glory of God rest upon it, showing the acceptance of God of that temple was Kirtland, Ohio. It never happened in Nauvoo. Anyway, continuing on. I, well, actually, I have, I have something to say as well. Like, I have people that they all tell me, you know, we're going to, we know you're a prophet, and we want you to baptize us, but we live wherever they live, right? And it might only be a couple hundred miles away. People back in the day used to, like, walk hundreds of miles to go see the prophet. Now you can get in your car and drive. And I even tell you where I am. And I've even told people I'll meet them in Salt Lake if they fly in. But they can't be expected to actually do that. You know, I've had people fly in. Um, I had a guy fly in from Philadelphia so that because uh, he wanted me to baptize him. And he stayed. We, like, I took him to, uh, well, I took him to a, a couple of meetings and stuff. And, like, we hung out for, like, four days. And then, and then he went back to Pennsylvania, you know. I've had people drive up from Mexico to be baptized. 
But then I have other people who say they want me to baptize them who live pretty close, like, you know, relatively close, a couple hundred miles away. And they just, they never make the time to come. You know, and uh, these people, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I just find it interesting that, like, you know, back in the day, people would, like, take the time to actually, if they knew that Joseph Smith was a prophet, they would go and want to meet him. And it would, it would take, you know, they would have to walk because there were no cars. A lot of people didn't have horses. But they did it, you know. People moved to where the saints were from all over the world. Now, there's people that know that I'm a prophet now. And I am, I know. It's a shocker, but I am. But they know that. And they live like 100 miles away from here. And I tell them, look, God told me to tell you that you need to move here. Do you think they move? Nope. But people would leave, uh, move continents away to, to join with the prophet Joseph Smith. So it is what it is. I just, it's just an observation. God commanded me to move to Emory County, Utah in 2016. And uh, he's led me to where I am now. And he told, he showed me where we will go in the wilderness when everything falls apart. And the way things are looking, that could be any day now. But I hope it's not. I hope, I hope we have a lot of time. I just don't, I don't want that. I know that this nation needs to be cleansed. But, like, why do I want to go camping in the wilderness? I mean, Zion to be born, that would be great. But, like, nobody's gathering. So, and, like, I don't even know if I want people to gather either. Like, the only reason I talk about these things is because God told me, and it kind of frustrates me, that there's so many Judas ghosts and so many lazy people that won't actually do a thing. You know, but, like, truth be told... I don't want you here. I enjoy my privacy. I like the fact that people around these parts don't know who I am. I mean, they kind of do, but not really. And that's fine with me. I'm not looking for the popularity. I, I, I actually probably offend more, more, you know, just telling them the truth. I'm not going to smooth things out and make things nice for them. I'm just going to say it the way it is, you know. Anyway, continuing on. Um, so, they were talking about uh, seeing a bright light like a pillar of fire resting upon the temple. And were astonished at what was taking place. This continued until the meeting closed at 11 p.m. The number of official members present on this occasion was 416, being a greater number than ever assembled on any former occasion. And that was recorded March 1836 and can be found in the Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 2, page 428. Part of the prayer that Joseph Smith received by revelation and offered during the Kirtland Temple dedication was as follows. 
Jehovah, have mercy upon this people, and as all men sin, forgive them the transgressions of thy people. Or forgive the transgressions of thy people, and let them be blotted out forever. Let the anointing of thy ministers be sealed upon them with power from on high. Let it be fulfilled upon them as upon those on the day of Pentecost. Let the gift of tongues be poured out upon thy people, even cloven tongues as of fire and the interpretation thereof. And let thy house be filled with a rushing mighty wind and are with thy glory. March 27, 1836, so that's the Kirtland Temple. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 2, page 422. The prayer was heard and accepted because two days later the prophet recorded, quote, I left the meeting in, ch- in the charge of the twelve and retired about nine o'clock in the evening. The brethren continued exhorting, prophesying, and speaking in tongues until five o'clock in the morning. The Savior made his appearance to some while angels ministered to others, and it was a Pentecost and an endowment indeed long to be remembered, for the sound shall go forth from this place into all the world, and the occurrence of this day shall be handed down upon the past pages of sacred history to all generations as the day of Pentecost. So shall this day be numbered and celebrated as a year of jubilee and a time of rejoicing to the saints of the Most High God. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 2, page 432 through 433. And you can find that. That was actually recorded March I thought I paused the recording. Sorry, I was like trying to look at something. Um, anyway, hopefully, well, sorry about that. Continuing on, we're at 74%. Many are baptized every week, although the eye says to yield its natural claims and be put aside. The gift of healing is manifest to, qu- to quite an extent in this region. The gift of tongues is received in most of the branches where I am acquainted. February 1841, Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 4, page 297. The gift of tongues was one of the gifts that Heber C. Kimball, the confidence he needed to serve, oh, that gave Heber C. Kimball the, the confidence he needed to serve in this gospel. He said, quote, I remember the time when I was baptized into the church and how after I was baptized, Alpheus Gifford said he left 
he felt impressed to ordain me an elder. I was on my knees and jumped up and told him to hold on, that I was not a learned man, and I thought that my ordination would injure the work. But presently the Holy Ghost came upon me till I thought that I should be burned up. So he had a, a baptism of fire. I could speak in tongues and prophesy, and I understood the scriptures. Journal of Discourses, Volume 12, page 191. Although the gift of tongues and the interpretation thereof was a great blessing and comfort to the saints, it also created problems for them. For those who despised Mormonism, it provided another reason to find fault with the rel relativity or the relatively new church. According to Orson Pratt, quote, Why were you driven from that land? I might answer you by repeating the words of our enemies, for they have published their reasons for driving us from our homes. One reason was that we pretended to speak in tongues, which was considered a mortal offense against the religionists. This was one accusation they brought against us, as you will find in their published declarations in which they pledged their lives, their property, and their sacred honor to depose us of our homes. Their sacred honor. Huh. Another uh, accusation was that we professed to heal the sick. What a terrible crime it was for a man to lay his hands on sick persons and ask the Lord to heal them. And then if the Lord healed the sick, they should not be worthy to keep their land, but should be driven from their homes and be deprived of their property. Another reason was that besides believing in the gift of speaking in tongues and healing the sick, we assumed to foretell future events. They did not like that at all. To people that should, to think that people should believe in that part of the gospel in the 19th century was too much for our enemies. And they said, we cannot have such people in our midst to corrupt our morals and to introduce the old-fashioned religion that is taught in the New Testament. Journal of Discourses, Volume 17, page 293, and we are on page 51, at 84% of the reading. Although the saints were driven into the wilderness, the gift of tongues faithfully followed them. Many saints around the world were given that gift, and it brought them into the church. In their travels out west, an interesting episode occurred with the Indians near Council Bluffs, as written by a 17-year-old girl by the name of Jane Grover. She wrote in her journal, One morning we thought we would go and gather gooseberries. Father Tanner, as we were familiarly called, uh, as we familiarly called the good patriarchal elder Nathan Tanner, harassed—I'm sorry—harnessed a span of horses to light wagon, and two sisters by the name of Lyman, his his little granddaughter, and me started out. When we reached the woods, we told the old gentleman to go to the house in sight and rest himself while we picked the berries. Not long, after, not long before the little girl and I 
strayed some distance from the rest when suddenly we heard shouts. The little girl thought it was her grandfather and was about to answer, but I restrained her thinking it might be Indians. We walked forward within, until within sight of Father Tanner. We saw, when we saw he was running his teams around, we thought nothing strange at first, but as we approached, we saw Indians gathering around the wagon whooping and yelling as others came to join them. We got into the wagon and started when four of the Indians took hold of the wagon wheels to stop the wagon and took others, and two others held the horses by their bits, and another came to take me out of the wagon. I then began to be afraid as well as vexed and asked Father Tanner to let me get out of the wagon and run for assistance. He said, no, poor child, it is too late. I told him they should not take me alive. His face was white as a sheet. The Indians had commenced to strip him and had taken his watch and handkerchief and while stripping him were trying to pull me out of the wagon. I began silently to appeal to my Heavenly Father. While praying and struggling, the Spirit of the Almighty fell upon me and I arose with great power and no tongue can tell my feelings. I was happy as I could be. A few moments before, I saw worse than death staring me in the face, and now my hand was raised by the power of God, and I talked to those Indians in their own language. They let go the horses and wagons, and all stood in front of me while I talked to them by the power of God. They bowed their heads and answered yes. In a way that made me know what they meant. The little girl and Father Tanner looked on in speechless amazement. I realized our situation. Their calculation was to kill Father Tanner, burn the wagon, and take us women prisoners. This was plainly shown to me. When I stopped talking, they shook hands with all three of us and returned all they had taken from Father Tanner, who gave them back the handkerchief, and I gave them berries and crackers. By this time, the other two women came up, and we hastened home. The Lord gave me a portion of the interpretation of what I had said, which was as follows. I suppose you Indian warriors think you're going to kill us. Don't you know the Great Spirit is watching you? and knows everything in your heart. We have come out here to gather some of our Father's fruit. We have not come to injure you, and if you harm us or injure one hair of our heads, the Great Spirit shall smite you to the earth, and you shall not have power to breathe another breath. We have been driven from our homes, and so have you. We have come out here to do, to do you good and not to injure you. We are the Lord's people, and so are you. But you must cease your murders and wickedness. The Lord is displeased with it and will not prosper you if you continue in it. You think you own all this land, this timber, this water, all the horses. Why do you not own, why you do not own one thing on the earth? Not even the air you breathe. It all belongs to the Great Spirit. And that was recorded in Truth Magazine, 
volume 10, page 138. So, like, we're at 99%. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. You can call in with your questions on theology or history, uh, or you can accuse me, or you can agree with me, or you can just call in. I, the guest call-in number, the guest line is open. Uh, one of the things I have a problem with, you don't see the gift of tongues in the church anymore. And it's supposed to be like the most basic of gifts. Like, I have literally been to churches all over North America and in the Orient. And with few exceptions, they're all spiritually dead. In Matthew chapter 24, it talks about the eagles gathering where the carcass is. That is a vision of the Latter-day Saints. The eagles are the elect, and the carcass is the church that has died. It's dead. The LDS church is in full apostasy. It's dead. There's many great truths within the church, but they are trying to get rid of them. And the reason you know it's dead is because the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit are not in the church. Now, the Spirit might testify to of a truth that the church teaches, but that doesn't mean that the church is true. Because it doesn't matter who testifies of a true thing, the Spirit will bear witness of the truth of it. I have sat in congregations uh, of Mormon, like Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, fundamentalist Mormon churches, uh, Pentecostal churches, Baptist churches, Catholic churches. You know, I felt the Spirit testify when truth is being told. But just because the Spirit testifies of the truth that is told doesn't mean the person who is sharing it is a prophet or even an evangelist or teacher of God. It just means that the truth that they were speaking is, is true and the Spirit witnesses to the truth. That's the same thing with the leaders of the LDS Church. They claim to be prophets, but they do not prophesy. They claim to be seers, but they have no vision. And they claim to be revelators, but they have not had a thus saith the Lord revelation in over a hundred years. So if you want to argue with me about that, call in. Guest call in number is 917-889-8827. And I'll finish this reading here. The gift of tongues has been manifested many times and for many reasons in this dispensation. It was indeed a beneficial gift that helped provide a strong spiritual foundation. So when we come back on tomorrow, we'll be doing chapter 7, which starts on page 53, and it's called Comfort and Instruction. And, of course, I'm going to be in the dip when it's time to, to talk again. So, anyway, hopefully it doesn't break up too much.
Kim doesn't have time to do any reading tonight. She said she would, but, um, you uh, know, like, the house is just a disaster. And the kids don't think they have to clean and do their chores unless somebody is standing over them. And uh, what, what, what did you say, Emmett? Emmett. She's calling in right now. Oh, I don't want her to call. I don't want her. Fine, unmute her. But I don't want her to read if she doesn't have time to do it. Because, uh, you know, things need to be done around the house, which is fine because we're all so busy and we can't do anything. But, you know, we're never done cleaning because uh, for the listening audience, we have five kids. Uh, we have a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old. And then the, the other two are supposed to help. And then we have a two-year-old. But the 16-year-old and the 14-year-old never finish their jobs. And, like, I asked for a spoon the other day so I could eat, uh, you know, what I had left from my food that I took to work with me. And uh, all the all the uh, utensils, all of them, are in the dish strainer, and they're all still dirty because my kids don't know how to follow instructions, which just creates a hassle all the time. Because we have to follow them around and get them to redo what they supposedly did. And they will stand at the sink for five hours and not finish the dishes, you know, and not, not do the things that need to be done. So then, um, you know, it's just a hassle all the time. But, you okay, know, everyone. I guess that's kids. So Carl Malone just passed me. Okay, are you done? Yeah. Do you know who Carl oh. Malone is? No. Yes, I do. Yeah, he just passed me. Okay. I'm on Highway 6, south of uh, Price, or, well, east of Price. I'm on 6, whatever. I'm I'm not quite to Wellington, but cool. Anyway, that was random. So, yeah, it is what echoing. did you have to say? Oh, I do want to say one thing. Okay. Um, Kim brought something up uh, while the recording was going off the air because uh, I was on the other phone with her and I was monitoring it with, uh, you know, on one phone and I was talking to Kim on the other. And there are a couple of individuals who have recently discovered me within the last couple months. And they want to be baptized, you know, and, you know, the time will come when they might come out and that'll be fine and that'll be great. You know, the people I was talking about during the recording are people like from the Harmston group. There are people in the Jim Harmston group in Manti, Utah, and they all know, they say they all know that I'm the Lord's anointed, but none of them come, none of them come. Years and years and years. And and Manti, Utah, in the summertime, you can go over the pass between uh, Fairview and Huntington. That's like 45 miles. And then Manti, Utah is not too far south of that. You know, it's within a 100-mile drive. None of them show up. And we have other people in Salt Lake that proclaim that they know that I'm a prophet. 
and they don't show up. And then we have people who have been baptized, people in Idaho and Utah, in Arizona, New Mexico, that guy in Pennsylvania. They all did get baptized, but they don't, they don't listen. You know, if I tell them, hey, Heavenly Father told me that this is a gathering place, this is where we need to be, oh, they'll get baptized and they want their blessings, but they don't show up. Now, real quick, the man like unto Moses is supposed to come, and it says in Acts chapter 3, 22 and 23, you shall hear his voice, and all they who will not hear his voice, and basically do what he says. You know, because he is a prophet, you're cut off from among the people. So you can go halfway or you can go all the way, you know. But if you only, you know, just do the bare minimum, well, expect the bare minimum. You'll be cut off. That's the way it is. That's, that's scripture. So anyway, go ahead, Kim. Okay, so from what I can gather, you want me to read in How to Qualify for the Celestial Kingdom today by James C. Cox, right? If you have time, but I thought you didn't have time because there's all the other things um, that have to be done. And it's Chapter 7, right? Feeling self-worth? Yes. Okay, just making sure. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> so then this is on page, page 69. Um, another barrier to spirituality and feeling the love of God is feeling of low self-worth. The main source for feeling self-worth to be valid must be spiritual and not simply temporal. Other sources are valid, but not central. Starting off with definitions. Spiritual worth is the spiritual value Heavenly Father has placed upon each of his children. This worth is felt through the revelation and spiritual performance. Number two, self-worth is the value one perceives in himself as a human being. This evaluation can include his perception of his spiritual worth, the value he puts on his performance, his physical appearance, his material possessions, his family, even his attitude towards how he feels other people value him from day to day. Feelings of self-worth are the emotional payoffs that come through daily activities, thoughts, and experiences measured against one's perception of his self-worth. Number four, worldly performances are one's acts performed in the world. The results of these acts may be negative or positive in relationship to spiritual growth. If they are done to gain the love of the world for power or for the honors of men and are used as a substitute for real personal worth, then these are negative. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, um, is what it is quoting there. Um, I guess if Emmett wants to go in and look that up, then we can read that in just a minute. Again, Emmett, so you're listening. First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. If they are honorable and done because one is capable and wants to achieve to develop his talents, then the results will be positive. Do you have that looked up? Yes. He's looking it up right now, um, but I'm already on it, so I will go ahead and read that. So 15 through 17. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out all of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that 
sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Okay. Oh, that's because that went, no, that's right. John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. That must have to do with developing talents. If they're honorable and done because one is capable and wants to achieve to develop his talents, then the results will be positive. I don't know if you have anything on that that you wanted to comment. Mark? It uh, must be a misquote of scripture because that doesn't sound anything like what he's trying to get at. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And I'm like, uh, am I looking at the right thing? Emmett, did you look it up and you have something different than what I just said? What did you get? Yep, I'll mute me so we don't echo. Okay, so so what I got, it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. I don't know why, but it cut off at uh, 16. Hold on. Trying to find 17. For some reason, it only pulled up 15 and 16. That's okay. The um, world and its eyes pass away, but whoever does the will of God is forever. That sounds more along the lines of what we're reading, so thank you for looking that up. I'm going to give you the next one so you have that ready and available. Emmett, can you look up DNC 8833? And take it off speaker so I can't hear myself talk twice. That'd be great. Okay, so I'll continue on, and then hopefully he'll have that next one already ready and yep. pulled up. Yeah? That goes I can along hear you. with the scripture that says, that says uh, you know, to be friends with the world is to be an enmity or opposition with God, you know. But so that's one of the things, like, we're supposed to be the bride of Christ. But when we go after the things of the world and we make ourselves friends with Babylon, then we're basically cheating on our husband. Our husband who loves us and wants us to turn to him, we're cheating on him. When we are in the world, businessmen, businessmen in the world. Anyway, I, you know, friendship with the world is to be in opposition with God. Okay, and continuing on with number five, spiritual performances are activities done because of the love one has for Heavenly Father. These activities develop a person spiritually and build inner strength. They are done to glorify our Father in Heaven. Number six. Spiritual gifts are free gifts to us from Heavenly Father, but we must extend effort to qualify for them. That is, we must prepare ourselves to receive them. And then Emmett, DNC 8833. Okay. 33. For what does it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him and he receives not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not in that which is given unto him, neither rejoices in him who it is him who is the giver of the gift. Sorry, Aries is screaming. Okay. Um, and Emma, I am going to ask you to look up the next one also. 
and the first numbers that I gave you were not correct. The second ones are correct, okay? Please take it off speakerphone so I can't hear myself twice. Number seven, worthiness is the measure of merit or qualification for spiritual gifts. As a man's worthiness increases or decreases, so does his spirituality. Worthiness has nothing to do with one's basic value or spiritual worth. But the greater one's worth, worthiness becomes, the easier it is to feel the love of Heavenly Father. Number eight, love is treatment that matches our spiritual, or our spiritual identity. It is affections and concern expressed by warm understanding and acceptance, open approval and appreciation. It is recognition of the great value of one's true worth expressed inwardly as well as outwardly. Now, next part of this chapter is Earth's life is not to prove spiritual worth. We were sent down to this earth for two main reasons, to gain a physical body and through experience to qualify for a kingdom of glory in the next life. How could one possibly improve his spiritual value as a son or daughter of God? If one person achieves four gold medals and another achieves only one, does that increase the spiritual worth of this person? If I succeed in teaching ten people the gospel and you succeed in teaching only one, does that mean that in the eyes of God I have greater spiritual value than you? If I sin and you do not, does that mean God values you more than he does me? Of course not. Now, in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, Emmett. Okay, Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 4 to 5, right? Um, or 2 to 5, which one? Okay. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Our spiritual worth was established before we were born into mortality, and nothing in our earth life will ever change it. But what we choose to do in this earth life will determine which kingdom we qualify for in the hereafter. We are here to attain worthiness, and that is based upon performance. Who are you? You are a noble, faithful spirit, son or daughter of God, born and reared in the course of glory by heavenly parents during the past 6,000 years. You have been taught by heavenly beings prepared to be born upon this earth and at this final time. You are unique, and Heavenly Father loves you unconditionally. You might have been born at some other time or place during the Dark Ages or during the Flood or in Africa, Russia, Poland, or China. Why were you selected to come to the earth at this time, just before the second coming of Jesus Christ? Because you are qualified to do the work that he needs to be done. You have talents and capabilities that are needed for this great event. You did not just happen into life at this time and place. It was meant for you to be here now. Abraham tells us in Abraham chapter 3, verse 22 through 23, quote, Now the Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was. And among all these, there were many of the noble and great ones. And God saw these souls, that they were good, and he stood in the midst of them. And he said, These I will make my rulers, for he stood among those that were spirits, and he saw that they were good. And he said unto me, Abraham, 
Thou art one of them. Thou wast chosen before thou wast born. End quote. Again, that's Abraham, chapter 3, verses 22 through 23. Who are these noble and great ones spoken of by the Lord? Hartman Rector, Jr., in the Spokane, Washington, East Stake Conference on January 1, 1976, said that the noble and great ones are the Latter-day Saints. Bruce R. McConkie in General Conference, April 1974, said, all those who received the Melchizedek priesthood in this life were among the noble and great in that primordial sphere. Joseph Smith said, every man who has a calling to minister to the inhabitants of the world was ordained to that very purpose in the grand council of heaven before this world was. Your spirit is pure, holy, and beautiful. Brigham Young clearly stated this, quote, I have taught you that the spirit is pure when it comes into the tabernacle. The tabernacle is subject to sin, but the spirit is not. A great many think that the spirits of the children of men, when they enter the tabernacles, are totally depraved. This is a mistake. They are as holy as the angels. The devil has no power to con- contaminate them. He only contaminates the body. End quote. And that's from Brigham Young Journal Discourse, Volume 3, page 207. <clears throat> You were indeed created a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor. That's Psalms 8, 5. If you could look into the heavens and see who you really are, you would be overwhelmed with your capabilities, your talents, your spiritual qualities, and the vision of what you are able to become. If we knew now who we really are, we would feel different about ourselves. We would be excited and enthusiastic about this life even with its burdens and frustrations. President Lee exclaimed in Harold B. Lee Conference Report, October 1973, page 9, quote, What a difference it would make if we really sense our divine relationship to God, our Heavenly Father, our relationship to Jesus Christ, our Savior, and our elder brother, and relationship to each other. End quote. Again, from uh, Harold B. Lee Conference Report, October 1973, page 9. Each of us was obedient to God's laws in heaven before this world was created. We loved our Heavenly Father very much and followed his counsel. Some children in heaven were disobedient and followed Satan. But we kept our first estate in the premortal existence and therefore are guaranteed one of the three degrees of glory, regardless of how we live in this life, unless we qualify as a son of perdition. In Abraham, chapter 3, verse 26, it says, quote, and they who keep their first estate shall be added upon, and they who keep not their first estate shall not have glory in the same kingdom with those who keep their first estate. And they who keep their second estate shall have the glory added upon their heads forever and ever. Uh, end quote from Abraham chapter 3, verse 26. All of us were tested and tried before we came to the earth, and each of us was successful. President Lee continues, well then, who am I? Those lacking in that important understanding and consequently in some degree those failing to hold themselves in the high esteem which they would have if they understand and are lacking self-respect. When one does not have that love for himself, he ceases to love life or if he marries, he has lost his love for his wife and children, no love of home or respect for the country in which he lives and eventually he has lost his love of God rebellion in the land, disorder, and the lack of love in the family, children, disobedient to parents, loss of contact with God, all because that person has lost all respect for himself. 
I recall the prayer of the old English weaver, Oh God, help me to hold a high opinion of myself. That should be the prayer of every soul, not an abnormally developed self-esteem, but that becomes haughtiness, conceit, or arrogance, but a righteous self-respect that might be defined as belief in one's own worth, worth to God and worth to man. Self-respect is primary to peace and happiness. That is from um, Harold B. Lee Conference Report, October 1973, pages 4 and 5. What is your value in the sight of God? President Kimball answers this question for us. In Spencer W. Kimball, Ensign, November 1978, page 105, quote, God is your father. He loves you. And your mother in heaven value you beyond any measure. They gave your eternal intelligence spirit form, just as your earthly mother and father have given you a mortal body. You are unique, one of a kind, made of the eternal intelligence, which gives you claim upon eternal life. Let there be no question in your mind about your value as an individual. The whole intent of the gospel plan is to provide an opportunity for each of you to reach your fullest potential, which is eternal progression and the possibility of godhood. This summary of our eternal worth is a reminder of the privileges and responsibilities which are ours. It encourages us to value ourselves as we are valued by eternal parents and our elder brother, Jesus Christ. The Savior's example and guidance from the prophet should help each of us to appreciate more fully our value and worth. End quote. Again, from Spencer W. Kimball and signed November 1978, page 105. Spiritual performance. Spiritual performance occurs when one centers his heart and mind upon Heavenly Father and serves him with all his might and strength. He does home teaching or prepares the sacrament because he loves the Lord. He presses forward, feasting upon the words of Christ because he chooses to serve God out of love. Great blessings are given. Emma is going to look up D&C 130, verses 20 through 21. Such as the gift of the forgiveness of the gift of the Holy Ghost, personal revelation, a celestialized body, eternal life, peace, and love. As one lives the law of tithing because of his love for Heavenly Father, blessings are given to him. Emma, do you have that first quote? Because now we have also, again, Malachi 3, 8 through 11. But if he lives it grudgingly, then his ties are counted evil before God. Um, Emmett? Hi. Oh, okay, you are there. So look up DNC 130, verse 20 through <laughs> 21. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay, so the first thing that popped up, uh, D&C 130, verse 20 to 21, uh, by the LDS Scripture Rock Band. <laughs> okay, perfect. You don't have the um, Scripture app on your phone? Uh, I tried to go there, and it didn't load. Uh, they changed some things about it, and it doesn't even have Why don't the... you grab the Scriptures? Heck, I mean, you could go to LDS.org on the desktop. 
hey, that'd be a great idea. And then you would have it all right there. And the well, desktop should be that up, open I already because have you're the supposed next to be. I already Seriously. have the next one up, so I'm going to go ahead and read the next one. Okay. Um, and this the is Malachi. I was going to say the desktop should be open because he's supposed to be watching the studio on the desktop, not his phone, which we have said over and over. Anyway, okay. Okay, Malachi, chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings, ye are cursed with a curse. For ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And then also there is... I have a a statement. Okay. Okay. The fact that they bring this scripture up drives me a little bit nuts. Now, I agree with, uh, with like, supporting people in the work of the ministry if they're really called by God, you know. Mm-hmm. What I have a problem with is the law of tithing. Uh, like they they want to pick and choose out of the Old Testament what what they're going to say is applicable and what's not applicable and you know what was nailed to the cross what's not nailed to the cross tithing was meant for the Levites who had full time jobs in the work of the temple um you know it wasn't for the rabbis it wasn't for the synagogues. Each synagogue was a community thing, but like, I I don't know. I just I find it just it seems hypocritical because they they always want to say, well, well we don't have to worry about any of that other stuff in the Old Testament, but uh, you know because Jesus nailed it to the cross, which he never said. He actually said, I I come not to do away with the law, one jot or one jot or tittle of the law, where or the Torah, the law and the Torah, same thing. You know, but they'll they'll throw anything out that they don't want to do. But then, uh, on the other hand, if it benefits them, they'll be all like, "Oh, well, that part parts, you know, that wasn't nailed to the cross." <laughs> and it's just it's asinine, you know. It, it's ridiculous. So anyway, I just it's just something that drives me nuts. Now, um, I have had a revelation in the past that people are supposed to be supporting me. And I hate it because even when I was homeless, I worked. I never um, asked I'm going to interrupt money. you real quick. Never begged. Um, Go ahead. There's 90 seconds on the live streaming portion of this program. Uh, so anyone who wants to call in and listen has to call in before then. Uh, the guest call-in number is yeah. 917-889-8827. Uh, I repeat, 917-889-8827. So if you want to yeah, call in before so we have the next minute, you got to. Two, yeah, 
We have uh, two hours of live streaming and one hour of overdrive if we need it. But when we go into overdrive, the only people who can listen to the rest of the program either have to do it in one of two ways. They can either call in and listen on your phones before the end of the two-hour live streaming because it will cut off completely. And then you won't be able to call in. You won't be able to listen on the live stream either. Uh, or wait till the podcast comes out on Apple iTunes or wherever you're getting a podcast, uh, podcast addict or Chrome or like there's a bunch of different ones. Anyway, yeah, you can listen to it at, like after it's done. But anyway, go ahead, Kim. Okay. So Moroni chapter 7 verse 8 says, be, for behold, if a man being evil giveth a gift, he doeth it grudgingly. Wherefore, it is counted unto him the same as if he had retained the gift. Wherefore, he is counted evil before God. And likewise, also, it is counted evil unto a man if he shall pray and not with real intent of heart. Yea, and it profiteth him nothing, for God receiveth none such. Wherefore, a man being evil cannot do that which is good, neither will he give a get a good gift. Anyways, that was like three verses more, but it sounded all good. Okay, next. So, an individual. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, like you want to talk about scripture? I'm going to say something, yeah. Okay, then, like, so, say something. <laughs> okay, I'm saying it. Okay, so... Um, uh, a man being evil cannot give a good gift, but a Judas goat who is a false prophet who is leading the people astray will teach many good things, but then they will lead people astray in key points of doctrine. One of the um, Judas goats that I'm dealing with right now teaches people to pray. You should pray about everything. Okay, but he tells you, come to a conclusion, tell God what, you know, he's basically copying me and what I've been telling people. Come to a conclusion, take it to God, tell him what you believe, ask him if it's right. And then I tell people, and according to uh, the revelation given to Joseph Smith about Oliver Caldry, God speaks to your mind and to your heart. He will whisper to you in your mind, and then it, if it's true, there will be a confirmation when you ask, if it's true, by the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is in your heart, your feelings. But he'll say, go to God and ask if it's true, and then ask him again if it comes from him. And if you get a yes, then that means it's from God. Well, Satan can give you revelation too. And I know he listens to this program. Satan can give you revelation too. And Satan can tell you that he is God because he is, according to him, a God. He's fallen, but what a... So when you ask and you go for a double head, you know, get revelation in your head and then confirm it with your head, that's not in your heart. When you confirm, when you ask God to confirm the truth because you believe it, you ask for confirmation of the Spirit, and the Spirit will either burn within you like the disciples 
who met Jesus on the road to Emmaus, who did not know they were walking with the resurrected Savior. And then their eyes were open, and he disappeared from among them. And they looked at each other, and they said, did not, did not our hearts burn within us, as if we should have known it was him? But there's also the fruit of the Spirit, which is peace and joy and love and these type of feelings. And that is a confirmation of the Spirit. Now, if you believe a lie, the Spirit will withdraw from you and you'll be left to the buffetings of Satan, which is the exact opposite of the fruit of the Spirit that you feel with your heart. These things are anxiety and depression and um, anger and just an uneasiness. And when that happens, you can know that what you believe is a, is a lie, and you need to turn away from it. It's false doctrine. You should repent for believing in false doctrine so that the curse, you know, the curse of Second Thessalonians chapter 2 doesn't come upon you. But when you have these Judas goats, they teach so close to the truth. They stay, and, and the Spirit will testify to the truth no matter who says it, like I talked about before. But in key points of doctrine, they will lie to you and get you to go off the path and see things from a different perspective, which is not from God. And so you need to be wary of them. And they are all over the dang place, all over. So um, I had another thing I wanted to say, but I can't remember what it is right now. And it probably doesn't matter. So I guess I'll just uh, unmute myself. Okay, I have the, the DNC 130.20-21 pulled up. I'm going to read that okay, real quick. There is a law irrevocably dece- or decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world, which all blessings are, pred- are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to the law upon which it is predicated. Okay, thanks yeah. a minute. An individual who thus places his heart, might, mind, and strength on Heavenly Father recognizes his own spiritual worth. He can fail in financial matters or be rejected by others in the world and feel the results of his own and others' negative performance. But these negative feelings will have no lasting effect upon upon his feelings of self-worth. He will still be able to pray and receive strength from above to sustain him. He will still strive to do well in both the spiritual and the worldly dimension because he is capable and wants to grow, develop, and achieve. But some persons base their feelings of self-worth in the acceptance of others. Such a person may also love Heavenly Father, but his main source of self-worth comes from others. He has a great need to be accepted by other people. Rejection by others is devastating to him. His need is so great or becomes so great in time that he fills it at the expense of giving love to others and growing spiritually. In time, church work may become a burden for him because it may not meet his needs to feel loved and accepted by people. This person eventually must turn his heart to Heavenly Father and learn to serve others because of his love of God. When he does this, he will feel love from above and genuine love from those he serves. He will gain a true testimony of his own spiritual worth and have less need to be loved by others. 
he will develop a greater need to love others as his capacity to love increases. Some persons base their feelings of self-worth upon performance and the external world. If their performance is acceptable financially, socially, or religiously, then they feel good about themselves. But if their worldly performance seems inadequate, then they feel very bad about themselves. They feel embarrassed if they do not have as much as their neighbors. They feel the Lord doesn't love them if they are not called to high positions in the church. They feel inferior around those who have what they judge to be greater achievements. They spend much time making comparisons in order to create good or bad feelings within themselves. The solution, again, is to turn to Heavenly Father to find peace in the straight and narrow path. Worldly performance should serve to help us grow and develop, but it is not an acceptable source of feelings of self-worth. Some persons base their worth upon a rejection of any standard of performance except their own. They take refuge in saying that they don't care what others think or say. They boast. I determine what I will do and when I want to do it. This kind of person is very self-centered. He doesn't care what his actions do to others. In reality, he is hurting inside and has a desperate need for spiritual growth. But he does not recognize that his needs are spiritual. It is easy for such a person to become involved in sin, which he will say concerns him and no one else, including his spouse, even though his spouse must suffer spiritually and perhaps physically for his decisions and actions. This kind of person must repent and seek forgiveness from Heavenly Father so he can let the true light back into his life and establish a correct spiritual relationship with Heavenly Father. Worldly performance is good if it is used to help a person grow and develop in good works, earning money, performing community service, exerting leadership, playing at sports, and so on. But worldly performance can be harmful if it becomes the main source for feelings of self-worth. This is because we substitute dependency upon the world for the strength of the spirit. The Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Some members of the church haven't experienced the joy of keeping the commandments solely from the love they have for Heavenly Father. Instead, they keep the commandments so they can feel acceptable as a person of worth. This kind of service is appreciated, but it brings little peace or lasting happiness. In time, keeping the commandments will become a burden, not a blessing. Unconditional love. It is easier for one to sense his own spiritual worth as a child of God when he is experiencing unconditional love, either in giving or receiving it. I know several members of the church who first experienced unconditional love in a church court. They felt themselves really loved and valued, even though their sins and mistakes were openly known. These courts became the turning point in their lives, the beginning of their spiritual growth. Why? Because for the first time in their lives, they felt that there was a difference between their personal worth and their wrong or right acts. They felt it was really truly that people could really love them and at the same time dislike what they did. 
some people do not feel that God loves us unconditionally. God's love for Joseph Smith, they say, is much greater than his love for a sinner. Others claim that God loves us all unconditionally, but that he loves some people more than others. President Kimball urges us all to make our love unconditional. In Spencer W. Kimball, The Teachings of Spencer W. Kimball, Brook Bookcraft, 1982, page 247. But where there are special challenges, we fail only if we fail to keep trying. Let our love of each member of our family be unconditional. End quote. He states that God, God's love is perfect. This is also from Spencer W. Kimball, The Teachings of Spencer W. Kimball, Bookcraft, 1982, page 244. Quote, he states that God's love is perfect. We know all, or I'm sorry, eh, the quote starts here. We know also that God is perfect in his love for each and all of us as his spirit children. When we know these truths, sorry, when he knows these truths, my sisters and associates in this divine cause, it should help us greatly as we all experience much less than perfect love and perfect justice in the world. If in the short term we are sometimes dealt with insensitively and thoughtless by others, by imperfect men and women, it may still cause us pain. But such pain and disappointment are not the whole of life. The ways of the world will not prevail, for the ways of God will triumph. Unconditional love, I'm sorry, that is end quote from Spencer W. Kimball, The Teachings of Spencer W. Kimball, Bookcraft, 1982, pages 2 144. Unconditional love comes from a sender to some receiver. The receiver may or may not be willing to accept it. A parent can give love to his teenage son unconditionally, and a teenager may not feel it. To feel such love from a parent or from God, the receiver must prepare his heart and mind to feel it. This is according to the law of free agency. One may extend the love unconditionally, but for another to receive it, he must meet certain conditions. No one can force another to feel or think anything. The receiver must decide what he will think or feel or do. This is why the Lord told us that if we want to abide in, that is to feel, his love, then we must keep his commandments. The commandments are given to us to help us grow spiritually and therefore to help us draw closer to Heavenly Father. The closer we draw to him, the easier it is to feel his love because our capacity to feel his love has increased. The scriptures speak often of this kind of perfect love in John chapter 14, verse 15. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Why this charge? Because the love we feel for God will create a desire in us to come back into his kingdom, and the way to accomplish that is by keeping his commandments. In John chapter 14, verse 21, it says, quote, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. That's John chapter 14, verse 21. This may sound conditional, but it really only means that uh, as I keep his commandments, I will be filled with his love. Why? Because I've qualified to walk in the light, where it is easier for me to feel, experience, feel and experience God's love. In John chapter 15, verse 10, it says, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
That's John chapter 15, verse 10. And this is BNC chapter 95, verse 12. If you keep not my commandments, the love of the Father shall not continue with you. Therefore, you shall walk in darkness. And quote from BNC 95, verse 12. It is clear that we can feel God's love if we walk in the light. And the commandments are given to show us how to walk in the light. If we choose to walk in darkness, we cannot feel God's love. When the Savior prayed for all of us before his death, he said in John chapter 17, verse 26, quote, And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith shall thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. End quote from John chapter 17, verse 26. The Savior was sustained in his temporal struggles because of the love he felt from God. And now he prays that we may feel the same love from Heavenly Father. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, quote, But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. End quote. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. That's 1 John chapter 2, verse 10. And this is also 1 John chapter 4, verses 7, verse 8, verse 12 through 13, and verse 16, quote, Beloved, let us love one another, for this, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he is in, and he in us. Because he hath given us of his spirit. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. End quote. Again, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7, 8, 12 through 13, and verse 16. One keeps the commandments not so God can love him more, but so he can feel free or feel God's love more. And the more he feels the love of God for himself, the more he feels his spiritual worth. And the more one feels his worth, the more he will be able to feel the same worth for all mankind, regardless of performance. Okay, so the assignment is, and the objective, is to draw closer unto Heavenly Father and grow spiritually by feeling your spiritual worth daily. Okay? The first step to this objective would be to come to know the truth about your spiritual worth and value as a child of God. You are a noble, faithful spirit, son or daughter, born and reared in the courts of glory by heavenly parents. Visualize where you came from. Feel the peace, the joy, and the excitement of living in the courts of glory. Feel the joy you had when you learned that you had kept your first estate and qualified to go into the second estate. Many spirits turned from God but you were spiritually strong and had great love for your heavenly parents. You were one of the noble ones. You are almost equal to the angels in heaven. After you have done step one, step two is value yourself as God values you. President Kimball said, God is your father. He loves you. He and your mother in heaven value you beyond any measure. Let there be no question in your mind about your value as an individual. Performance has nothing to do with your spiritual value. 
You have great worth in the sight of God and in the sight of Jesus Christ. Allow these feelings of your worth to sink deeply into your mind and heart. Step three. Come to really understand and feel the love Heavenly Father has for you. Perfect love, pure love, unfeigned love, unconditional love that flows from heaven. God knows you by name. He is aware of your trials, your difficulties, your struggles, and your happy moments. He loves and accepts you just the way you are right now. He wants you to improve spiritually so you can experience greater happiness. Not so he can love you more. He never stops loving you. There are no requirements on God's love for you. Only requirements for you to feel his ever-flowing love. Step four. Run through your mind and heart several times each hour how Heavenly Father loves you. Value yourself as God and Jesus Christ value you. President Harold B. Lee in General Conference, Conference asked us to do the following. Now, as I come to the closing of this address, I trust that I might have given you, to you, and others who have not yet listened to such counsel, something to stimulate some sober thinking as to who you are and from whence you came. And in so doing, that I, might, I may have stirred up within your soul the determination to begin now to show an increased self-respect and reverence for the temple of God, your human body, wherein dwells a heavenly spirit. I would charge you to say again and again to yourselves, as the primary organization has taught the children to sing, I am a son or daughter of God. And by so doing, begin today to live closer to those ideals which will make your life happier and more fruitful because of an awakened realization of who you are. Results from those who practice feeling their spiritual worth. I feel much closer to Heavenly Father. I can feel his love for me and my love for him as grown. I think he has become more real to me. He has become more a part of my everyday life. I think of him much more than I did before, and I try to do what he wants. I have learned to like a couple of people I really did not care much for before. I'm praying more. I feel the love of Heavenly Father, and I understand the great gift he has given me. I feel I am a real daughter of God. I am happy most all the time. I don't feel afraid to meet Heavenly Father anymore. I felt I have grown tremendously. My spiritual growth was not as it should have been, and now I feel closer to my Heavenly Father because I feel better about myself. By loving myself, my spiritual growth has accelerated. I feel much more personal relationship with Heavenly Father. I realize now that He loves me unconditionally. I don't get down on myself like before. I feel like pushing on and not dwelling on my mistakes. I can overcome the Lord and me. I feel like a new person. I feel no one is any better than I am. I know my Heavenly Father loves me. I think differently about others and 
try to understand and love them. I have a continuous need to converse with Heavenly Father. He is my strength, my light, my everyday life is a joy and so rich. Before I felt I was not important enough to bother him with my troubles. And when I was really troubled, I did not feel worthy. I feel much love, joy, and compassion towards others. And I have much love for myself, along with joy and peace. I no longer feel that God only loves others. I have known I was a daughter of God, but now I am beginning to feel it. A neat feeling. I don't condemn myself, so I feel more joy. I show more love to others. I understand that when I fail at something, it does not affect how my Heavenly Father feels about me. And that was the end of Section 2, I suppose, even though I did not know where I went to Section 2, because now we're on Section 3, interacting with the spiritual dimension. Um, how many that one's pages only a, is that? I was going to say it's a couple of pages. Okay, well... We're already almost 30 minutes into overdrive. Okay. Well, we can just add that on to the next one because that was a lot um, to think about and also do, and it gave you an action to, you know, follow through with what we've been reading. Do you know what I mean? So. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I just want uh, my wife, Kim, and my kids to know that the reason why I work so hard is because I love God and because I love you guys. And I want to make the best life for us. You there, Thank you. I just about loaded to come down now. So just so you know, sir. Appreciate it. <laughs> so. At least I know I don't. <laughs> so, um that my co-drivers call me Redbeard. If you have seen any of my videos, you know why. Anyway, but, um, yeah, I, I want to, like, give the best life to you guys as I can because I love you so much and because I love God. And that's why I do the work of this ministry because he's asked me to do it. And uh, it's not easy, but... Um, Joseph Smith said he stands for true principles even if he stands alone, and uh, I think I know exactly what he mean, meant. So, anyway, yeah, we'll just do the rest of the pro, uh, the, the section tomorrow if we have time, and uh, I guess we'll just be done with the program for today. So, thank you, Kim, for reading. Thank you, Emma, for watching the studio. My pleasure. And. Uh, Go ahead and play the music, and we'll be back on tomorrow with another episode of Zion's Redemption Radio Network, Fundamentally Mormon, at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Thank you. Bye. (laughs) 